discouragement, embarrassment, and fear. These are the three things that Paul knew his young successor Timothy would be prone to. As we saw last week, we we looked and reminded ourselves of the circumstances surrounding this letter, surrounding Timothy's life. So Paul wrote 2 Timothy knowing that these were the things this young man was prone to. Discouragement, embarrassment, and fear. And so Paul writes to help Timothy overcome these things. Paul writes to help Timothy find boldness to live for Christ. Today's sermon has been titled, How to Be Bold for Christ. Paul writes to Timothy, giving him sort of a game plan, if you will, reminding him of the resources God has provided to him so that Timothy may live a life unashamed, unafraid, bold for the work of the Lord. And this is applicable because as we know, persecution and difficulty is not unique to Timothy. It's not unique to Paul. It's not unique to the first century. We know that no matter our circumstances, whatever nation we live in, it's difficult to be a Christian. Certainly, some nations have it more difficult than others. Certainly, there have been times in church history that have been more intense than it is today. But the fact remains that the Bible does not simply speak of persecution as some life or death scenario. You can still be persecuted for the Christian faith, even if your your life is not threatened. Persecution comes in all different forms and shapes and sizes. And so everyone in this room, all of us as Christians, have to recognize that there is a tendency for us to shrink away from the gospel, to shrink away from the Bible, to shrink away from what Christ has revealed. And is what the culture at large would want. And so what we see as Paul writes to Timothy, he's really writing to us. How is it that we can have assurance that God has given us what we need to be bold and unashamed living the Christian life. Well, we see that. If you would, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We will be reading verses 3 through 12. If you would, follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed." For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Well, I think what we're going to find in this text is Paul implicitly lays out five different encouragements, if you will, five different resources or reasons that Timothy has to cling to, 
in order to find confidence and boldness in difficult ministry circumstances. I, I will run through them very quickly, but we will break them down point by point. And here are the things that we need then collectively to do if we want to live bold, unashamed lives for Christ and the gospel. And the first one is to receive affirmation. The second one is to remember our ancestors. The third one is to depend upon the Holy Spirit. The fourth is to understand the glory of the gospel. And the fifth is to take comfort in the sovereignty of God. So let's break those down one by one. The first one is we need to receive affirmation. We need people around us. We need someone to affirm us, to encourage us, to lift us up. Because that's what Paul does from the get-go of this letter. Listen to the pastoral tenderness at the beginning of this. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. And all of this leads into what he's doing in verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith. And then he concludes in verse 5 that this was a sincere faith that was in your your mother and your grandmother, and I'm sure is in you. Paul begins this letter by telling Timothy, I love you, I want to be with you, and your faith is real. Your faith is genuine. He's affirming him. He's affirming him. This is, this is something Paul does a lot. The first Thessalonians, the whole beginning of that letter is Paul basically telling the Thessalonians, listen, I know things have gotten rough, but your faith is genuine. He ends near the book of Romans by reminding them of the sincerity of their faith. These people needed someone, especially someone like Paul, to come into their life and say, listen, I love you, I want to see you, I want to be with you, and your faith is real. I'm affirming your faith. We need to receive affirmation, and Paul does this, as we briefly noted already, in three different ways. The first one is he prays. He prays for Timothy. He says not just that, but he prays constantly. He remembers Timothy in his prayers night and day. Paul is constantly praying for Timothy. One of the best ways, most effective ways for us to live gospel lives for Christ, bold gospel lives, is to have our church be praying for us. You know, we, right now, as I briefly mentioned in our prayer, there's a lot of talk in the media when bad things happen and we talk about prayer and non-Christians really mock that idea. Prayer, they, it doesn't do anything. Obviously, from a biblical worldview, we don't believe that. Paul had effective prayers for Timothy. Paul interceded for Timothy. I am always praying for you. One of the most comforting verses that we see that Peter was ever told was Jesus told Peter that you will be tempted and Satan will try to sift you as wheat, but I will pray for your faith that it may not fail. What a glorious thing it would be to hear Christ himself say, I'm praying for you. Wow. We want to be praying for one another. As a matter of fact, I I, I do not say this to brag. I actually say this to expose my weakness And to show you that when I study and when I read and when I preach, I am not preaching at you. I am not just studying for you. I study for my own self too. And I preach to myself. And as I was reading this, I was cut to the heart and convicted about my lack of prayer for the church. And so I took a bulletin and I hung it up in my office. And every day I just go through the members and I pray for whoever's name is on the list yet to guarantee to myself that I try my best to follow in Paul's footsteps and pray for my church. We need to be praying for one another. I would just simply ask you, not in a judgmental, con, you know, and I'm not hurting feelings here, but I just ask you, when's the last time you've prayed for your church or maybe specific people in the church? 
For Paul, it was a night and day endeavor. And we see this in his other letters. He was constantly praying for his churches. We need prayer. We need our fellow believers to affirm us and help us by interceding for us in prayer. But we, what we also see here is affection, right? Paul longs for this affectional relationship with Timothy. Paul is not stoically separated from Timothy like, uh, you know, okay, I'll pray for you. Uh, but that's as far as our relationship goes. No, I'm praying for you, but I also want to see you. I want to be with you. Why? So that I can be filled with joy. Paul and Timothy are both in discouraging situations right now, and Paul recognizes, you know what would help a lot? If we could just be together. This is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to meet regularly as a church. The affection and the fellowship and the love that we feel should be sort of a daily or weekly charge to our batteries. That when we are discouraged, when we are downcast, when we are downtrodden, we ought to think how much I long to be with fellow Christians to be filled with joy. We pray for one another and we have fellowship and show affection with one another. And then ultimately, as Paul says, he recognized that Timothy had a sincere faith. And that's actually one of the things we do as a church together. It's implicit. But when we exercise dirt, not just we as Redeemer, but the Christian local churches in general, when they exercise church discipline, when they remove someone from their midst, what they are essentially doing is saying, we do not affirm your faith. We do not find in you a sincere faith. And so our standing in unity together is a way we are constantly affirming one another in a sincere faith. So the very purpose of our local church is to be praying for one another, to be showing affection and fellowship for one another, and to affirm each other's faith. And so all of these things that Paul introduces, we can have even though Paul is not with us. We have it in the fellowship of the church in all of these ways in which we receive affirmation. We receive that encouragement. My church loves me. My church is praying for me. My church affirms my faith. Obviously, Timothy was worried about the nature of his faith, which is why Paul goes out of his way to tell him, no, your faith is sincere. And this brings up an important point that will become a little bit more relevant next week and in some of the further weeks. Paul obviously is introducing to us implicitly a category that it's possible to have an insincere faith. Otherwise, this is just redundant. What's the difference between faith and sincere faith? Isn't it the same thing? Well, obviously in Paul's thinking, you can have a kind of faith, but it's not sincere. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Scripture goes out of its way to, to sort of amend the word faith and distinguishing it from what other people have which we might be prone to call faith. For example, in the book of James, he talks about a living and active faith versus a dead faith. So you can have a faith, but it's dead. You can have faith, but it's insincere. One of the ways the Apostle John does this, when you read through the book of John in Greek, he will often describe people who have sort of believed on Christ, but they eventually fall away. He won't describe their belief in a present tense verb. He'll always describe it in a past tense verb, but with Christians, it'll be present tense. So there's subtle and explicit ways the scriptures go about helping us to understand that not all faith is created equal. And as we see, one of the constant themes of this letter is apostasy. And Timothy was being affirmed by Paul. All those people who are abandoning Christ and walking away, you're not like them. That's what Paul's trying to tell. I know you. I know your family. You're not like them. He goes out of his way to affirm Timothy's faith. But although you could probably categorize this as a side note, I just can't help because it's in the text. It's important. It's interesting, though, how 
Paul affirms Timothy. He, he could have just said, I thank the God whom I serve with a clear conscience as I remember you, as you are constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that you may be filled with joy. And he, he, I mean, he could have ended it there. He could have said, I could have, or verse five, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which dwells in you. He could have said that. But it's interesting, when Paul talks about his own life and when he talks about Timothy's faith, in both circumstances here, he brings in ancestry, right? Verse three, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. And then he tells Timothy in verse five, you have a sincere faith and that faith was passed on to you by your grandmother and your mother, and it now dwells in you. In both cases, he, he, he brings about this concept of remembering our ancestors. And I think this is an important thing for us to do. What did Paul mean in verse 3 when he talked about his ancestors? Well, what was Paul's point? Paul is linking here the Christian faith as the continuing progressive revelation of what God first laid down to the Jewish people. So Paul's saying our ancestors, the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the many godly men that came before me. Remember, Paul talks about, he's, he describes himself as being a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he's, Paul, Paul would identify himself as being the most Jewish Jew of any Jew you could ever meet. That's what Paul would say about himself. He's the Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he goes directly back to the patriarchs and he's saying, I serve the same God as them. And I do it like they did it, with a, with a clear conscience. And then he not only evokes his own ancestors, and this would have been some of Timothy's as well as he's half Jewish, but then he evokes Timothy's immediate ancestors, your grandmother and your mother. And so I think that there's a second principle here. I think it's important for us to remember our ancestors. And how is that important? What does that do? Well, uh, let me take a step back. It's, it's interesting that Timothy leaves, or that Paul leaves Timothy's dad out. Uh, the book of Acts, we know that Timothy's dad was a Greek, not a Jew, like his, his mother and grandmother. So the most likely scenario is that he was probably an unbeliever. Uh, some suggest he maybe had died, um, but probably Timothy grew up with an unbelieving dad. And so Paul appeals to his believing mother and his believing grandmother. Uh, they may have been believers in the Christian faith as well. Uh, Paul clearly has some kind of intimate connection with them. He knows these women personally. So it's very likely that he's referring to the fact that he led these women to Christ and then they helped lead Timothy to Christ. Um, but most explicitly, he's talking about that Jewish tradition. Uh, we see later on in chapter 3 when he talks about the Old Testament, he tells Timothy that he has been acquainted with those scriptures since childhood. So at bare minimum, these were the women who were, were pious in their Judaism and they raised Timothy in faithful believing Judaism and likely became believers in the New Testament era as well. And Paul appeals to them. Why does he bring them in here? Well, I think it's actually an encouragement. I think it's an encouragement when we are tempted to be unfaithful, to remember where we came from and to remember where this faith came from. For example, many of you in this room likely have believing parents. You likely have parents who raised you in the Christian faith. You likely have parents who made a lot of sacrifices to make sure that you were raised in a, in a household and a faith that loved the Lord. And in certain sense, Paul utilizes that. He sort of grabs Timothy by his ancestry in, in a way of basically saying, don't let them down. Life was hard for them too, Timothy, but they didn't quit. 
Don't let them down. When, when we embarrass Christ, when we embarrass, our, we don't just embarrass Christ, we don't just embarrass ourselves, we don't even embarrass our church. In many ways, we reflect our families and our upbringing. So Paul grabs Timothy by his believing mother, his believing grandmother. He reminds them of the love and the nurture and the sacrifice, all they did to bring him to this point. And he's saying, don't waste that. You may not have believing parents. You may not understand what that's like. And so I would encourage you to take this text and become your own Eunice. Become your own Lois. Raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and set that standard. Give them that additional accountability. Paul pulls in his parent or his mother and his grandmother as further, a further resource to help him endure what he's going through. He appeals, Paul appeals to our ancestors. Believing in Yahweh was not easy in the Old Testament. Being faithful was not easy in the Old Testament. I, I, one time I listened to a sermon, a guy preached at a pastor's conference, so he was preaching to other pastors. And just as a joke, he, raised his, he asked everyone to raise your hand. He said, show of hands if you would be willing to trade your ministry with Isaiah's. And no one raised their hand. The prophets of the Old Testament did not have it easy. The faithful remnant of believing Jews in the Old Testament did not have it easy. The patriarchs did not have it easy. And Paul said, just like what has the Christian faith been? All the way up to Christ, we have seen example after example of people who have not had it easy, yet they persevered. This is similar in Hebrews chapter 12. It talks about being surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Ryan preached this at Fred's funeral, that Fred had joined that great cloud of witnesses what was Ryan doing when he said that? He was talking, Fred finished the race. Christianity wasn't easy for him, but he did it. That's additional encouragement for us. So we not just receive the affirmation of our church, but we need to remember our ancestors. We need to remember where we came from. We need to remember where the Christian faith has come from. We need to remember what people in the past have gone through so that we could be where we're at today and we need to not let them down. We need to take their torch and continue passing it off. It's additional accountability to remember our ancestors. And I can't help but just briefly come back to this fact that I'm sure we're all noticing that when Paul appeals to Timothy and he reminds him of the great spiritual leaders in his life, they're both women. That's amazing. They're both women. That's important because I would just encourage all the women in here, especially since we've had, you know, we've had so many babies be born, hallelujah, praise to God. It's so important that the women understand how vital your role is in the spiritual development of your children. It's vital. It was vital for Timothy. Timothy didn't have a believing dad, or at least not that we know of, not one worth mentioning. But Timothy was the strong, bold, courageous man he was because of the women who raised him. And Paul says it unashamed. He's not embarrassed about it. He's not like, well, you know, unfortunately, I wish you would have had, you know, I wish I could bring up a man here, but I, I can't. So I, he's unashamed. He says, I love these women, and I'm proud of them, and you should be proud of them too, and you should continue their legacy on. Never underestimate the importance of your role. And here's the thing. Timothy played an important role in the advancement of the kingdom. So Eunice and Lois, their work in raising Timothy has had an unquantifiable effect on the entire global kingdom of God. And I'm not being, that's not an exaggeration. 
They literally changed the world because of the son that they raised. Not only should women not underestimate their importance in the spiritual formation of their children, but we should not collectively underestimate the importance of raising godly children and what that plays into God's plan for the advancement of the kingdom. The best way to change the world, like everyone's always talking, I want to change the world and be a difference maker. Here's how you change the world. Love the Lord Jesus and raise your kids to do the same. I don't change the world. We see the importance of his parents, but it brings us back a little bit more on track to, again, remembering our ancestors. We, we need the affirmation of our fellow believers. We need to remember our ancestors. And then he moves on to depending on the Holy Spirit. We need to be dependent upon not our own strength, not our own flesh, but upon the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in verse six. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. We, we talked briefly last week, Paul's talking about Timothy's pastoral ministry here. May, maybe it's more specific to his teaching ministry. Uh, I think it's to his pastoral ministry because in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4 is when Paul says that his pastoral ministry was passed on when he and the other elders laid their hands on Timothy. So this is a reference to Timothy being ordained to the pastor and, he, and he's telling Timothy to, 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 to rekindle that flame. The impression here is Timothy has obviously grown discouraged. He doesn't want to do this anymore. And Paul is saying, no, you need to rekindle that flame. You need to get that flame burning bright. You need to practice your gifts. You need to exercise what God has given to you. And you need to do it with full force. And if Timothy asked why, how do I know I even can do that? Because it doesn't feel like I can. I'm scared. I'm discouraged. I'm embarrassed. I, I don't have it in me, Paul, to do what you're asking of me to do. And Paul says, yes, you do. And here's why. Here's how I know that you have the ability to take on this role with boldness. Verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Essentially, Paul said this, Timothy, when you talk about, when you even entertain thoughts of, I can't do this, what you're essentially saying is, the spirit of God is ineffectual in my life. And he said, don't you dare say that. You have been given a spirit of power and love and self-control. God has given you what you need to overcome these emotions. Now, if, if, if you've studied this before, there is some debate as to whether he's, Paul is directly referencing the Holy Spirit or if he's just talking about Timothy's spirit. Like, should, in other words, should the spirit in verse, was it, seven? In verse six, or forgive me, verse seven, should that spirit be capitalized, so to speak? But I say it actually doesn't matter. I think he's directly referencing the spirit. But here's the point. Even if Paul is simply saying your human spirit, has, God has given your human spirit to be powerful and filled with love and self-control, the next question is, well, how does God do that? It's the indwelling of the spirit. So it just adds an extra step, but we're all going to the same place. We're all recognizing that Paul here is reminding Timothy that he has a supernatural power that has been endowed to him. So he ought not to embrace the world and embrace his ministry with a carnal mindset. That my limitations are entirely human. No, God has given you his spirit. He has given you what you need to be powerful and filled with love and self-control, discerning in all ways. You have been given what you need. But notice how the spirit is not just capable of restoring his pastoral ministry. It's capable of giving him the power to suffer for the gospel. Look at verse 8. Therefore... 
So the Spirit in verse 7 has been connected to verse 6, and it's also being connected to verse 8. So the Spirit in verse 7 is capable of rekindling your flame. Therefore, you are also capable of what? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. God has given us power. He's given us his spirit. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the gospel, but suffer for it. Paul's essentially saying, listen, I suffer for the gospel all the time, and it's not because I'm just such a better person than you. I'm just so much better than all those other Christians. No, Paul's saying all of us, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. That is all we need to look at a world of persecution and say, bring it on. I have the spirit of God in me. We need to depend upon the spirit in our daily lives, in our ministries, but especially in times of discouragement and persecution. We need to remember that God has given us a spirit of power that by the power of God, we are able to be unashamed of Christ, unashamed of his word, unashamed of his gospel, and to embrace whatever consequences that boldness might bring. It's a bring it on mentality. He's unashamed. Paul is unashamed. And he does this by relying on the power of God. God has given us a spirit of power. We depend upon the Holy Spirit. We have to depend upon the Holy Spirit. We are feeble, but the Spirit is powerful. And He dwells within us. And so we have what we need to endure suffering and to rekindle our ministries and the gifts that God has given us. But then He immediately moves from the Spirit of power and the power of God to reminding us in verse 9 of what God has done for us. What is the gospel that we're suffering for? And so we move to our fourth point, which is understanding the glory of the gospel. One of the most important things that we can do to help us live bold Christian lives is not just to understand the gospel, but to understand its glory. To truly understand how great the gospel is, to truly comprehend what God has done for us will help us to realize he is worth living a life of suffering. He has done enough for me. He has done so much for me just in the gospel itself. Not counting all of the other gifts that he's bestowed upon me. Just looking at the gospel and what God has done for me in the gospel makes him worthy of following wherever that might lead. The gospel ought to be so glorious that it outshines all of the persecutions that might be tagged along with it. We're essentially saying, I don't care what man does to me, my God and his gospel is worth going there. I don't care how bleak that situation looks. My God and his gospel are worth pursuing. When we understand the glory of the gospel, it just tends to outshine anything else God might call us to. And look at how glorious it is. He reminds Timothy in verse 9 of exactly what God has done that makes him so worth pursuing. The power of God, verse 9, who saved us. Just that bit right there. God saved you. You didn't save yourself. You're not trying to save yourself. You're not hoping you might be saved. God accomplished your salvation. The grace and the power and the mercy of God has been extended to you so that he saved you. He didn't ask you to save yourself. He didn't command you to save yourself. He didn't just give you some tools and hope you make the best of it. He saved you. He saved us. 
God who saved us and then he calls us to a holy calling. He calls us to live lives of holiness and sanctification. Romans 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God by saving us and changing our hearts. God has now opened up a whole door, a whole avenue where we can now live lives of purity and holiness and joy. He saved us and then he called us to a holy calling. Now what's the basis upon doing this? Why did he do this? Is it because you're just so great? You're just so amazing. I mean, why wouldn't he save you? I mean, you're like the best person anyone's ever seen, right? You hardly ever make mistakes, so of course God would save you. No. He saved you, according to Paul. He saved you and called you to this holy calling. How? Not according. Not because of works. It has nothing to do with what you've done. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. You didn't achieve it. It's not because of what you've done. And folks, that's good news. Anyone who truly understands the nature of their own heart, who truly understands the history of their own lives, knows that's very good news. A gospel that says here, God wants you to live a certain way and you'll be saved is no gospel at all. That's not good news. That's terrible news. That's horrible news. I, I, one time I heard it th- said to me, imagine if we could take every thought you've ever thought Imagine we could uh, somehow put a USB in your skull and, and, and obtain every thought you've ever thought and project it on a movie screen for the whole world to watch. What would your response be? That's who we are. It doesn't matter how many soup kitchens we've given our time to. It doesn't matter how many times we helped our neighbor paint their shed. We have histories and lives filled with unrighteousness. With unrighteous thought, unrighteous motives, unrighteous deeds. And so a gospel that says here, I'm going to examine your life and determine whether I will save you on that basis is horrifying. Imagine standing before God and saying, as long as your thought life was pure, I'll save you. No one has hope. But the gospel is glorious. The gospel is good news because it's not based on our works. What is it based on then? Well, as Paul goes on to say, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This is God's plan. He purposed to save you. He purposed to show you grace. You didn't earn it. The reason we're Christians in this room, you realize, it's not because we're so much smarter than our unbelieving neighbors. Right? Like, that's why I'm a Christian, right? I mean, I'm just so much smarter. I followed the evidence, I studied the evidence, and I, I came to the conclusion they just must not be smart enough to see that it's true. No, it's not because we're better. I'm, I'm just so much morally better that God chose to reveal himself to me and not to them because they are just wicked. I'm not. No, we're not different anyway with this one exception. We have received grace. He saved us according to his own purpose and his own grace. Not according to us. But it's by grace we have been saved. As Paul tells us, this is God's own purpose to glorify himself in showing grace to his people. We have been saved not of our works, but we have been saved by grace. And this grace is what he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This was not a flippant choice on God's end. This was not a reactionary choice on God's end. This is exactly what God chose to do to glorify himself. 
And this further gets to the point that, again, it's not based on us. How could you earn it if the decision was made before you even existed? It's not based on you. It's not based on what you've done. It was chosen before time began. That's when God showed you grace. But then he says, even though this happened outside of time eternally, it was still accomplished in time itself. Look at verse 10. In which now this glorious eternal plan of God has been manifested in history through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. And what did Jesus do when he came to save us? He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the gospel story is how death is conquered so that we can live forever with God. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to conquer death so that we might live forever with God. And and Paul calls that light. Jesus brought light to the darkness. He revealed and exposed this wonderful eternal plan happening right before our eyes that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, death has been abolished so that at the last day when we are resurrected, we can say with the Old Testament prophets, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? God, through Christ, has shown us grace, and that grace is what enables us to come to Christ, to be resurrected with him, to never experience death, to live in immortality, and we know all this because Jesus came as the Logos, the word of God, to bring light to the darkness, to reveal this wonderful eternal plan. Paul makes this explicit. Keep your marker here and and turn to a very well-known passage, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is essentially summarizing his gospel message here from Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So grace has been given to us through Christ in the ages past so that we might be holy and blameless, justified and called to a holy calling. This is exactly what he told Timothy. This is exactly the same message. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? Our works? The purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did he save us? Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Again, it's almost word for word. With which he has blessed us in the beloved being Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. In other words, the plan, eternal plan has now been made manifest. Again, this is almost word for word. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Your salvation began in eternity, was accomplished in Christ in history, and will be fully consummated at the end of history. 
And it's not according to your works. It's not according to your sins. It is a free gift of grace. And Paul says, as we go back to our text, when we reflect on that, if we truly believe that, where, why wouldn't we follow God anywhere he calls us? That should be our response. When we, when we feel embarrassed to admit Christian truths, when the world is persecuting us, our response is, my God extended grace to an unworthy sinner before time began, sent his son to die for me, saved me apart from my works to the praise of his glory. Why wouldn't I follow him wherever he leads? The gospel is so glorious and so wonderful, it outshines all persecution. That's why Paul says in verse 11, this glorious gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, that's why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. And then he leads us right into our sixth and final point. Actually, before we move on, let me just, something else that we also learn from verses 9 and 10 is that even if you know the gospel, you need to hear it again. Timothy knew this. Timothy was a believer. Paul decided to tell him about the gospel again. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's one of the clearest examples of the gospel we have. Paul says this gospel, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection according to scriptures. But he prefaces it in 1 Corinthians 15 chapter 1, I remind you of this gospel in which you have believed, in which you are currently standing. They already know it, Paul. They're standing in it. Paul says they need to hear it again. This is why we as a church are unashamed to talk about the gospel every week. This is why we are unashamed to do communion every single week. We are unashamed because we need to hear the gospel time and time again. We need to hear the gospel constantly and always be reminded of the gospel, be saturated in the gospel because even though we believe it, it's easy to forget just how glorious it is. That's what Timothy's doing here. Timothy is prone to fear and discouragement because he has forgotten how glorious that gospel is. So Paul says, let me remind you what God has done for you. He expected that to light a spark, so to speak. But then Paul not only turns to the gloriousness of the gospel, but he turns to the sovereignty of God in conclusion. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 12. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now this is a fascinating verse. Well, every verse in scripture is fascinating, but here's the reason why I say that about this one. It's because in the Greek, this is what we call an ambiguous phrase. What that means is that the phrase could be contextually interpreted one way or another. So just, just by show of hands, how many people in here are using a King James or a New King James? Is anybody using a King James or New King James? Okay. Is anyone using an NIV? A couple of NIVs. NASV? Handful of those. ESV? The ones who truly love the Lord? Okay. <laughs> Your Bibles might say something different on this verse. We just sang the song. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him. But what does the ESV, known as the elect standard version, what does the ESV say? Just kidding. What does the ESV say? I am unashamed why, because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So what's right? 
Well, there is one right way or the other. I'm going to give you my opinion, but as I typically do, I'm going to argue that it really doesn't actually make a whole lot of difference which way we go. In the Greek, what Paul talks about here is that he knows whom he has believed and he is convinced that he is able to guard, in the Greek it says, my deposit. God is able to guard my deposit. So the question is, in what sense is the deposit belonging to Paul? Is it Paul's because God has given it to him? Or is it Paul's because he's made it? Like, is it my deposit that I'm depositing to God? Or is this thing God has given me now has my deposit? Has God deposited it in Paul or has Paul deposited it in God? Well, in the Greek, it's ambiguous. It could be contextually either way or the other. It's just Paul's it's my deposit. So the different translations will translate it differently. I'll, I'll just briefly give you what I think. I think that the ESV got it right. I, I love the song, and we're going to sing it because it's a great song, but I think, though, that the song is wrong. I think that it's the deposit that God has given Paul. And here's the reason I think that. It, it, look at verse, I know it's not part of our text today, but just briefly, look at verse 13. Or forgive me, look at verse 14. Paul tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And that word deposit is the exact same word that he used earlier. So I think this deposit is something that God gave to Paul, and it's also something that God gave to Timothy. I think it's a deposit, something they have received. But what are the, really the interpretive differences, regardless of which one you take? If, if, if you take it as Paul is the one making the deposit, in other words, it's what I've entrusted to him, it could be interpreted as anything like Paul's pastoral ministry, his apostolic ministry, this, this ministry that I'm living, I'm giving it to God, and I trust him with ministry. It could be just his life in general. I'm giving God my life and I trust him. I'm depositing my life to God, so to speak, and I, I trust him with it. It could be that. If you take it as being God giving something to Paul, then it could be slightly different. It could be that it could as well be Paul's ministry because God is the one who ordained Paul to that. It could be the gospel. I've, I've given you the gospel. It could be the whole Christian faith. But I want us to zoom out for a minute and just look at how really these small divergence in the road really bring us to the same place of comfort. What's the overall point here? Paul says, I have a personal, intimate relationship with God. I don't ultimately have this confidence and trust because of something I've read. I did not put philosophical arguments together. This is not a theory. I know who I believe in. I know him. Paul stands on his personal relationship with God and he says that I am convinced that God is able to guard this good deposit. However you interpret it. So what's the overall point? Here's what, here's what Paul is saying. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in a, in a contextual circumstance where it seems as if everything is falling apart, what's Paul saying? God is guarding <laughs> God's still in control here. God's doing whatever God wants to do, whether it's my ministry given to him or his gospel given to me. However, the point is, is God is powerful. He's over this situation. And so even though it looks bad from my perspective, I know whom I believed and he is able to guard and do what he will do with these circumstances. I, I, I take it as ultimately being the Christian faith, that God is able to guard this deposit given to me. He's going to, God is not going to let the Christian faith get snuffed out. That, that's what I think Paul's saying. 
But no matter which little direction you turn, the overall point here is Paul is entrusting his circumstances to the God who is over his circumstances. He's essentially saying, listen, Timothy, even when things get really bad, God is still in control and he's still working his purposes. He's still guarding that good deposit. Paul is trusting himself to the faithfulness of a sovereign God who is able to accomplish his purposes. Paul's ministry will not be in vain. The gospel will not be in vain. The Christian faith will not be in vain. No matter what you interpret the deposit as, what's the point? God is in control of it. He's taking care of it. He's guarding it. Paul is reminding himself and he's reminding Timothy, I know things look bad, but we know who we believe in. And we know what he's capable of doing. So we don't need to look at our circumstances and fall into despair. I know who I believe. And he's able to guard what has been entrusted to me. So in conclusion, are are you discouraged? Are you fearful? Are you ashamed? Are you struggling to live the Christian life the way God has called us to live it? Well, I would remind you of these things. I would remind you that your local church loves you and affirms you. I would remind you of the cloud of witnesses that surround us, maybe even in your own personal family, who are encouraging you and holding you accountable to move forward. I remind you of the spirit of power that has been given to you, which is a supernatural ability to overcome these carnal fears. I would remind you of the glory of the gospel by which God has saved you in Christ apart from your works, and I would remind you that God is never losing control of our world. May those five things bring you great encouragement, as I am sure that they brought Timothy great encouragement. Remember these things. And remind yourself that God has given you everything you need to live a life unashamed of Christ, unashamed of his word, and unashamed of his gospel.